Amen. I hope we can sing those words with truth. I'd rather have Jesus than anything this world affords today. I want to invite you to take your Bible and turn with me to Joel chapter 2 this morning. Joel chapter 2. If you're looking in the Pew Bible, you ought to find it on page 968. And I want to begin this morning with a story from 1600s England about a man named Titus Oates. I suspect, I'd be really surprised if anybody in here said, oh yeah, I remember Titus Oates. But uh, some, of, some you, of you, when you leave today, you're going to want to go Google him and read everything you can about him because it's a pretty weird story. So Titus Oates was a pastor's kid. And uh, like, like some pastor's kids, not all, uh, he developed a, a bad habit of lying at an early age. And I'm, I'm not a psychologist or a psychiatrist. I don't have any data to back this up, but just based on what I would have read, I would, I would characterize him as a pathological liar. Uh, he lied about anything and everything in order to sort of advance himself. Um, he falsely claimed to have a degree from Cambridge uh, in order, get this, in order to become ordained as a priest in the Church of England. So he, he lied in order to, to get his ordination. Um, a few years later, he, he made some false accusations against a, a school headmaster because he wanted that guy's job. So he was trying to get him fired so that he could get his job. And that pattern persisted and escalated over the course of his life, and it all culminated in something that is known as the Popish Plot. Here's what the Popish Plot was. So uh, Titus Oates was Church of England priest. Then he became a Catholic for a while. Then something happened, and he decided he didn't like Catholics anymore, so he became a, an Anglican again. And not only that, but he then began to accuse some of the people that he had known in the Catholic world of a scheme to have the King of England assassinated. And he started naming names. Name, you know, he went and, you know, under oath, he named all these people, these people, they had this plot. And I mean, he's, he's a good liar by this point. So he just had all these, all these stories about their, their plot to kill the king. And... Long story short, 15 people were executed, totally innocent, totally because this guy made it all up. 15 innocent people were executed. Now, a few years later, new king takes the throne, James II. There's a problem for Titus Oates, and the problem is that the new king is Catholic. And as you can imagine, he is not a member of the Titus Oates fan club. So, new king has Titus brought in for a trial. He's tried, he is convicted, two counts of perjury, and he's sentenced to life in prison for perjury. And in addition to that, there, in addition to the lifetime sentence, he was five days out of the year, he was to be taken out into the streets of London and publicly whipped five days a year for the remainder of his life. Wild wild story, okay? And there are lots of wild stories like that from history. The question is, 
what makes the saga of Titus Oates something that stands out enough that, that we know about it? Because there are, there are plenty of stories like that from history. And one of the reasons why we know the story of Titus Oates is not only because of what he did, but because of what the government did to him in response. Uh, a few years after he was sentenced to lifetime in prison for perjury and to be publicly whipped five days out of the year, there was a provision that was added to the English Bill of Rights, and that provision was about 100 years after that. It was copied almost verbatim in the American Bill of Rights. The Eighth Amendment is the one that prohibits the government from imposing excessive bail, excessive fines, or what the Constitution calls cruel and unusual punishments. Now, I tell you that story because it's kind of like a Rorschach test of some of you are thinking, that doesn't seem excessive at all to me for what he did. He, he lied and 15 people died, so I, I, wouldn't have, I wouldn't have huffed or anything if I would have seen him publicly whipped. I might have been right there with him whipping him five days out of the year. And some of you are thinking, I don't know, you know, he didn't kill anybody. He lied, it was wrong, but did he really deserve lifetime in prison? Did he really deserve to be humiliated like that? I don't know. I'm not, I'm not making a judgment on that at all. The reason I tell you that story is to illustrate the fact that humans have been trying to figure out how to do justice for a long, long time. And we have debated it. We've had trials about it. We've had treatises written about it. And, you know, we've been going on for a long, long time, and we still haven't all agreed on what is just and what is unjust, on what is excessive and what is not excessive, what is cruel and unusual and what is absolutely fitting. And so I want to suggest you can learn an awful lot about an individual and about a society by paying attention to what do they consider to be worthy of harsh judgment and condemnation and what do they sort of ignore. It is very revealing to notice what gets people all worked up and what doesn't seem to bother them all that much. We're closing out the book of Joel this morning with a passage about justice and about judgment. And we all have a sense of the need for justice and of the need for grace. And the question is, who decides where the dividing line is between one and the other? And that's what this chapter is all about. So we're going to actually begin in the last couple verses in chapter 2, chapter 2, verse 30. Let's read together. God says, And I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be those who escape, as the Lord has said. And among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. For behold, in those days and at that time, when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. And I will enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people and my heritage Israel, because they have scattered them among the nations and have divided up my land, and have cast lots for my people, and have traded a boy for a prostitute, and have sold a girl for wine, and have drunk it. What are you to me, O Tyre and Sidon, and all the regions of Philistia? Are you paying me back for something? If you are paying me back, I will return your payment on your own head swiftly and speedily, for you have taken my silver and my gold and have carried my rich treasures into your temples. You have sold the people of Judah and Jerusalem to the Greeks, 
in order to remove them far from their own border. Behold, I will stir them up from the place to which you have sold them, and I will return your payment on your own head. I will sell your sons and your daughters into the hand of the people of Judah, and they will sell them to the Sabians, to a nation far away, for the Lord has spoken. Proclaim this among the nations. Consecrate for war. Stir up the mighty men. Let all the men of war draw near. Let them come up. Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weak say, I am a warrior. Hasten and come, all you surrounding nations, and gather yourselves there. Bring down your warriors, O Lord. Let the nations stir themselves up and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat. For there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Go in, tread, for the winepress is full. The vats overflow, for their evil is great. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision, for the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and the moon are darkened, and the stars withdraw their shining. The Lord roars from Zion and utters His voice from Jerusalem, and the heavens and the earth quake. But the Lord is a refuge to His people, a stronghold to the people of Israel. So you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who dwells in Zion, my holy mountain. And Jerusalem shall be holy, and strangers shall never again pass through it. And in that day the mountains shall drip sweet wine, and the hills shall flow with milk, and all the stream beds of Judah shall flow with water. And a fountain shall come forth from the house of the Lord and water the valley of Shittim. Egypt shall become a desolation, and Edom a desolate wilderness, for the violence done to the people of Judah, because they have shed innocent blood in their land. But Judah shall be inhabited forever, and Jerusalem to all generations. I will avenge their blood, blood I have not avenged, for the Lord dwells in Zion. Let's pray together. Lord, we confess how much we need your help today. So Lord, I pray, Spirit of God, that you who inspired this passage would illuminate it for us. Help us to have eyes to see and ears to hear what you would show to us and say to us through these words. Help us to digest all of this in a way that would be um, helpful and not confusing. So Lord, would you give clarity um, not only about what this meant, what it means, but how we could obey you and walk in faithfulness with you. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, there's a lot, there's a lot going on here, a lot to digest in this passage. And so what I want to do is um, I want to do, you know, what uh, some of our mamas did for us when we were little. I want to cut, cut up the food for you and say, okay, here's a few little bite-sized pieces. Don't, don't try to chew too big of a piece that you can't handle. And uh, so let's try to cut this down into a few bite-sized truths, as it were, and then ask, okay, now how do we digest all of that? So I want to give you four bite-sized, manageable truths, um, and all of these center around what God's judgment will be like. So the first is that God's judgment will be just. God's judgment will be just. This is a foundational truth about the Lord, that He is just. He does not fly off the handle at the slightest offense. He is, as He told Moses, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. 
He doesn't fly off the handle, nor does he judge anyone contrary to what they deserve. God never gives anyone judgment contrary to what they deserve. He sometimes gives grace contrary to what we deserve, but he never gives justice contrary to what anyone deserves. The prophets demonstrate that truth by showing how God instructs and warns His people. That's one of the things that we can kind of get bogged down in when we're reading the prophets is all of these accusations of sin, where God is just over and over accusing His people of their sin. Maybe this will help us kind of make sense of that when we're reading it because what the prophets are doing is showing us that the things God is warning about are just. There is a reason behind it. And so he warns his people about their sin. He, he outlines the specific ways that they have gone astray and have broken covenant with him. He lays out all of the evidence for his case. And the reason for all of that care is so that we who are reading this and observing this can be assured that God always does what is just and right. And the same is true whether God is speaking about Israel or whether he's speaking about the nations surrounding Israel. He says there, In chapter 3, verse 2, I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. Now, we don't know of any place with that name. Maybe there was a place that they called that, but there's no archaeological evidence or no evidence anywhere else in Scripture that says, here's where the valley of Jehoshaphat means. What we do know is that the name Jehoshaphat means the Lord will judge. And when you read... Joel 3 here, that's what he says is going to happen in this valley. He says, I will gather all the nations and I will enter into judgment with them there. So maybe as you're reading it, it might be helpful anytime you see that phrase valley of Jehoshaphat to think valley of judgment. This is where God is going to judge the nations. And the first truth that I want us to see is that God's judgment is never arbitrary it's never careless. It's never excessive. He never just kind of you know, stumbles into something. His judgment is always deliberate and appropriate and just. The Bible consistently teaches that God will judge people according to what they have done, meaning I will not have to give an account to God for what you have done or for what anyone else has done or vice versa. Here in Joel 3, God gives several reasons why His judgment against the nations will be just. Again, He says there in verse 2, I will enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people and my heritage Israel because... So here's the reasons why He is going to judge them. Because they have scattered them among the nations and have divided up my land. So the nations have acted in unjust ways toward Israel and ultimately toward God. He refers to Israel as my people and my heritage, and he refers to the land as my land. So the nations have not only sinned against fellow humans, but against the Lord. And that is true of all sin, right? If we, if we sin against someone else, we're sinning against someone who's created in God's image, which means we're also sinning against the one in whose image they're made. In verse 3, God highlights a particularly egregious example of this. He says, and, and they, that is the nations, have cast lots for my people and have traded a boy for a prostitute and have sold a girl for wine and have drunk it. God is describing there what we 
would call chattel slavery, or, or what the Bible often refers to as man-stealing, which is buying and selling humans in the marketplace as if they were commodities rather than bearers of God's image. The nations, God says, have, have cast lots for my people. They have traded children, sold them, and bought them in order to pay for prostitutes and in order to have drinking money. Now, God's indictments against us may not be the same. Right? We, may not guilt, we may not be guilty of that specific sin, but the principle stands that God's judgment is always just. He's not going to punish anyone for a sin of which they are innocent. In, in Genesis 18.25, Abraham, when he is, is, is pleading for God to have mercy uh, on the city of Sodom because Lot is there, God, Abraham says to God, Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? So that's, that's the first truth, is that God is never going to condemn anyone who is innocent. God's judgment will be just. The second truth that I want us to see about God's judgment is that it, it will be universal. God's judgment will be universal. No, no one is going to be excluded from it. Now, when, when Joel describes this image of the nations gathered in this valley, he focuses on the nations surrounding Israel. He mentions um, a couple of Phoenician cities. He mentions the regions of Philistia, later Egypt and Edom. And that makes sense. Um, it would have been strange for Joel to, to name nations that his generation had never heard of, whether because they were in some other part of the world or from some other era in time. I mean, imagine if, if Joel had said, you know, God's going to judge the, the, the Romans. <laughs> who are the Romans? He's going to judge the Americans. Who, who are they? He's going to judge the Chinese. Who are they? Right? So he's speaking in terms that they could understand. But the book of Revelation borrows these exact images from Joel. I'm going to show you this in a second. And applies them to the whole world. So Joel is kind of saying, hey, God's going to judge all these surrounding nations. But then we know from the rest of Scripture that this is something that's going to include all nations. Even here in chapter 3, there are hints that this judgment includes everyone. Notice what he says in verse 9, he says, Proclaim this among the nations, consecrate for war, stir up the mighty men, let all the men of war draw near, let them come up. Then verse 10, Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Now, there are a few places in the prophets where it says that warriors are going to beat their swords into plowshares and their um, spears into pruning hooks, meaning there's going to come a day when there's going to the, the peace, the prince of peace is going to reign and there will no longer be war. And so there won't be any need for the weapons of war. And so the weapons of war will be turned into farming equipment. And what Joel says here is the opposite of that. He says, beat your plowshares into swords, meaning even, even farmers who otherwise would not go fight in this battle, they're called to, to leave their, their field and to take whatever they have and, and go and to prepare for 
war. And then verse 10 ends by saying, let the weak say, I am a warrior. So even those who would otherwise be deemed unfit for battle, for whatever reason, are called to the battlefield. So the summons is universal. Farmers, uh, disabled people, women, children, everybody. Everybody is called to the battlefield. No one is excluded. And so let's try to get this image in our mind. Um, The nations are called to consecrate themselves for war. Verse 11 says, Hasten and come, all you surrounding nations, and gather yourselves there. Then it adds, Bring down your warriors, O Lord, which probably refers to angels. So on one side of the valley you have the armies of the nations. On the other side you have the army of the Lord. And we're expecting there to be a fight that breaks out. But then something unexpected happens. God has called everyone here to the Valley of Judgment. He calls it later the the Valley of Decision. And in verse 12, that's what happens. Not a war, but a decision. He says, Let the nations stir themselves up and come up to the Valley of Jehoshaphat, for there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. Again, we see later in Scripture that this vision is widened to include not only the surrounding nations, but the whole world. So God's judgment will be universal. No one is going to be excluded from it. Third truth about His judgment is that it will be twofold. And what I mean by that is that there will be two and only two possible outcomes for every individual on this day. Many will be condemned after saying in verse 12 that the Lord will sit in judgment of the nations. Verse 13 goes on to say, Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Go in, tread, for the winepress is full. The vats overflow, for their evil is great. That's, that's kind of vague, isn't it? Uh, it doesn't sound good because it says their evil is great. So it kind of makes you wonder, what does it mean when it says the vats overflow? They overflow with what? Earlier in Joel, that was good news because they had been through a drought and they didn't have any grapes or, or oil or anything like that. And so God said, your, your vats are going to be overflowing with, with wine and with oil and that sort of thing. So that was a good thing. But now it sounds like maybe not such a good thing because he says the vats overflow because their evil is great. And when you read Revelation 14, you find out that this is, in in fact, bad news for the world. Revelation 14, what it does is it uses the same imagery from Joel and even some exact phrases to describe God's judgment of the evil of the world. John sees this vision of, of a cloud, and sitting on the cloud, there is what he calls one like a son of man. And then there's an angel who comes out of the throne room, and the angel says to the man sitting on the cloud, put in the sickle and reap, for the harvest is ripe. The exact phrase that Joel uses here. And so the Son of Man comes and he reaps the earth. Then there's another angel, and this angel comes, and he has what John describes as a very sharp sickle. And he comes down, and this time he doesn't reap the the grain of the earth, but he reaps the vine of the earth. And then he says that the the grapes are thrown into what John describes as the great 
winepress of the wrath of God. That's what Joel is talking about when he says that the vats overflow. It is this picture of the wrath of God overflowing upon the sin of the world. And so there's this picture of some being reaped unto vindication and salvation and others being reaped unto condemnation. And so both in in Joel and in Revelation and throughout the Bible, that's what you see, that many will be condemned. There will also be some who are saved and vindicated. Notice what he says in verse 16. He says, The Lord roars from Zion and utters His voice from Jerusalem, and the heavens and the earth quake. But the Lord is a refuge to His people, a stronghold to the people of Israel. So the question that kind of naturally arises is, where's the dividing line between those who are condemned and those who are saved? To put it in a very kind of personal way, how can I know that I am among those for whom the Lord will be a refuge on that day? Verse 16 says that He's a refuge to His people, a stronghold to the people of Israel. But... Paul tells us in Romans 9, not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all who are children of Abraham, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. So what makes someone a true Israelite, an heir of God's promises to Abraham, is not their ethnic heritage. Instead, as Paul says in Galatians 3, it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Those who are in Christ are the true Israel, and they are the ones for whom the Lord will be a refuge on that day. Joel himself hints at this very truth. I want us to glance back at the last verse of chapter 2, chapter 2, verse 32. This is a, of one of those verses that gets quoted several times in the New Testament. He says, And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be those who escape, as the Lord has said. And among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. Now I want you to notice something there. If you you read Joel carefully, what he's saying is, there will be some among Israel, not all, who are saved, who are survivors, as he puts it. Which implies that there will also be some among Israel ethnic Israel who do not call on the name of the Lord and therefore do not survive the day of the Lord. Equally true, the invitation to call on the name of the Lord and be saved is open not only to Israel. It's not, he doesn't say every physical descendant of Abraham who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. He says everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's why I say that God's judgment will be twofold. Many will be condemned. Many among ethnic Israel and among ethnic Gentiles will be condemned. And some among ethnic Israel and ethnic Gentiles will be saved. The dividing line is not ethnicity or nationality. The dividing line is those who call on the name of the Lord will be saved, and those who do not call on the name of the Lord will not be saved. And that leads to the fourth truth about God's judgment, which is that it will be purposeful. God's judgment will be purposeful, by which I mean that 
It is the culmination of His purpose, and it itself leads to a good purpose. He says in verse 17, So you shall know that I am the Lord your God who dwells in Zion, my holy mountain. He says there in verse 16, The Lord is a refuge to His people. And the purpose of this is so that you shall know that I am the Lord your God who dwells in Zion. The purpose of God's judgment is that His people will know that He is the Lord, the one who dwells in Zion. And what follows there in verses 17 through 21 is this image of a renewed city, a renewed Jerusalem in which the Lord Himself dwells with His people. He says there in verse 17, Jerusalem shall be holy. The reason it's going to be holy is because it's where the Lord dwells. It is the dwelling place of God. No longer, he says, will God's people have to fear what outsiders can do to them. But their enemies, like Egypt and Edom, will be a desolate wilderness. Everything in the city where the Lord is a refuge will be renewed, and everything outside will be if we could borrow words from Jesus, outer darkness, weeping and gnashing of teeth. And just as Israel's sin brought death and decay to the very ground itself, now creation is renewed, God promises in verse 18. And in that day the mountains shall drip sweet wine. Now I don't know if that sounds like good news to Baptists, but it's meant to be. It's meant to be. The mountains were going to drip sweet wine in the new heavens and the new earth. And I guess just so there's something there for everybody, the hills are going to flow with milk. So you take your choice. Uh, All the stream beds of Judah shall flow with water. So there's going to be lots to drink in the new heavens and new earth. And a fountain shall come forth from the house of the Lord and water the valley of Shittim. This was this arid place. So even the most dry and arid places will be thoroughly watered. So again... God puts this truth in terms that would make sense to the people of Joel's generation. He, he, he names landmarks that they would recognize. But the book of Revelation takes this image, just as it did with the image of the sickle and the wine press, and it expands it to include the whole world. So whereas we, we hear from Joel that the Lord dwells in Zion, it's not like that's wrong, it's just that This vision is bigger than one city on a mountain in the Middle East. The vision that we see in Revelation is of a new Jerusalem. John describes this new Jerusalem coming down from heaven and filling the earth with the glorious presence of God. So yes, the Lord dwells in Zion, but what we see that to mean in Revelation is that this new city comes down from heaven and fills the earth with the glorious presence of God. That's what John describes in Revelation 21. He says, And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. John goes on to say, I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God the Almighty and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. 
By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates shall never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter into it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. So those with whom the Lord will dwell in this renewed and restored city. These are not just people from one nation. They are those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. This vision of this new and restored city is not one in which all nations but one have been cast out. It's a vision in which sin has been cast out. What John says, everything that is detestable or false will be cast out. And what remains is the glory of God in His glorified people from every tribe and language and people and nation, those who have called on the name of the Lord. So, four bite-sized truths that God's judgment will be just, it will be universal, it will be twofold, and it will be purposeful. And so now the question is, how do we digest all of this? And what I want to, what I want to say is that over and over when the Bible speaks of what is to come, it's not just something that we're supposed to file away in our minds about the future. The future is meant to invade the present, to affect the way we live our lives today. What will happen in the future should affect the present. So, there are two kinds of people that I could be speaking to. If you've never trusted in Christ, if you've never surrendered your life to Him, then today is the day of salvation. Today is the day to turn to Him while there is opportunity. Paul says in Romans 3 that God is just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. God will condemn sin. That is his nature as one who is perfectly just. Yet he also justifies the one who has faith in Jesus. So either you trust in Jesus, in which case um, he bears your condemnation and judgment, or you will bear that judgment eternally. Paul says in Acts 17 that God has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. We're a couple weeks out from Easter, and that day, the day when we think most clearly and most specifically about the resurrection of Jesus, it is a day for those who are in Christ of great and tremendous hope. But if you are not in Christ, then Easter should terrify you. Because God, God says that Easter... The resurrection of Jesus is His assurance to us that He has fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness, and He has appointed a man by whom He will judge the world in righteousness. And so because that is true, Paul says there in Acts 17, that God commands all people everywhere to repent. Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your heart. That's one possible response to this. What about if you have trusted in Jesus? Well, you could say, you know, well, this, this just gives me hope, right, of, of, of the future. Uh, 
And that is absolutely 100% true. But what I, what I want us to think about is, is how does this affect right now today? Well, for one thing, all of us ought to think, shouldn't we, about people that we know who don't know the Lord. People we know who right now are headed straight for condemnation. And that ought to shake us. Because it is easy, terribly easy, to, to go through life and to think, okay, well, here's what I have to get done today. Here's what I have to do. Here, here are all my responsibilities. And never, never, ever to think about the fact that there is a day coming. And while I, I may have hope for that day, there are people that I intersect, people that I cross paths with, who don't have hope for that day. So that's, that's one thing we ought to think about. There, there can also be some assurance of what Abraham said, that the judge of all the earth will do what is right and just. Because we live in a world that is, is filled with injustice. And we as individuals and as societies have been aching for justice and we've been debating for millennia about how best to secure it. But there's coming a day when perfect justice will be done. There's coming a day when the one who has all wisdom and all righteousness and all holiness and all justice is going to make all things new. In the meantime, we are called to do what is right while also leaving all vengeance to the wrath of God. Because God is going to judge the world in righteousness, that means that He doesn't need my help. He's got it taken care of. And so I don't have to walk around being God's judgment police. We should do justice, but we should leave all vengeance to the wrath of God. And we're also called to live in light of what we are and what we will be. John puts it this way in 1 John 3, Beloved, we are God's children now. What we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him because we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as He is pure. So if I have hope in Christ that one day I'm going to be like Him, then that should affect the way I live right now, that I should be striving to purify myself now as He is pure. And Peter reminds us in 2 Peter 3 that the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And because this is so, he urges us to ask ourselves this question. What sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? Because of that truth of what he will do in the future, what sort of person should I strive to be today? We're going to sing a hymn of invitation in just a moment. This is our opportunity to respond to God's word. And it does demand a response. It always does. And so I want to urge you to uh, kind of be like a, a cow today. Um, we, I, I said that there's a lot to digest there. And what I, what I want to urge you today is just to chew it over, as it were. To chew the cud, don't spit it out. 
just try to digest it, ruminate on it, meditate on it. What is God calling me to be today in light of what He's going to do in the future? Let's pray together. Lord, we're thankful for Your grace and truth. We're thankful that You are the judge of all the earth who does what is right. And we're thankful also, Lord, that You are more than that, that You are for those in Christ, our Father in heaven, that You, Lord Jesus, are the good shepherd, the true vine, that You are the refuge in whom we find safety and salvation from the coming day of wrath. Lord, I I pray that um, you would help us to meditate on this day, that it would not be something that we quickly put out of mind, but that we would consider what you are going to do, and we will then consider what we ought to do in light of that day. Help us, Lord, to strive for holiness and for justice and for goodness, while there is time. And Lord, if there is anyone within the sound of my voice right now who has not trusted in you, I pray, Lord, that you would help them to feel how vulnerable they are outside of the refuge of Jesus and that they would run to him and trust in him and find one who welcomes them that they would hear the promise of your word, that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing together.